What would you do first if you became president of a 173-year-old college? How would you set the tone? What moves would you make to ensure the values of what was established long before you continued after you? Would you start with policies or speeches? Free beer Thursdays, maybe? Welcome to the Impact of Leadership podcast, where we believe no one drifts into excellence. I'm your host, Steve Shear, and this episode, I sat down with Dr. John Swallow, president of Carthage College in Kenosha, Wisconsin. You're going to hear not only what moves John made when he took over as president, what his greatest leadership lesson is, but also how he's working to link the college's rich history to the possibilities of its future. But it wasn't exactly smooth sailing when John considered the role as president. His first task, to make sure his family was on board with the move. I started out uh, the son of a, math, a biology professor and a music teacher. Okay. And I was thrilled to grow up that way and thought that I might be a teacher one day. Uh, started really early to enjoy mathematics uh, and sort of followed that out. In college, I was a math major and I was also an English major and thought maybe I should be an English professor. And I worried a lot about that. Uh, but then I went on in math, got a doctorate, started teaching, doing some math research as well and loved it. Thought that I would be doing that for the rest of my life. Um, married my wife, Cameron. So she's been a high school and middle school teacher, math. English, history, drama. Uh, and she will tell you that it was not a good day when I came home, uh, not long after I'd started at Davidson College and started quoting admission statistics too precisely. Oh. She was thinking, this is not a good thing. I thought we were going we were gonna teach, we were gonna have our summers, this yeah. was gonna be great, not a good sign. So she will track it all the way back to then. Uh, I didn't see it at that moment, I was just interested in lots of things. Um, I was happy, uh, teaching, doing research, working with students in lots of different capacities, mostly in math, but also some in the humanities. And then I got interested in broader things, uh, in part because I, I joined some committees at Davidson. Mm -hmm. We started tackling some bigger topics, strategic planning. Um, I found that rewarding. And the more I did that, the more I thought uh, my work could have a bigger impact. Mm -hmm. I was really glad to be teaching students and mentoring them and thinking about all that. But uh, I was realizing over time that I could go from teaching math, which is what I thought I was doing, mm -hmm. uh, and then realizing it was teaching students, not math, mm -hmm. and then helping students, mentoring students, and then what about participating in an organization that's going to affect lots and lots of students over time? There's a lot of reward in that. And so uh, one day I got a call when I was at Davidson College to come and be the provost uh, at Sewanee, my alma mater, and I took that home, um, pitched it to the family, and they all said no. <laughs> uh, okay. my, my kids were 12 and 14, and they said, there's no way we're leaving. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I called uh, John McArdle, the president, back, and I said, well, um, you know, thank you for the offer. Maybe uh, we could do something together one day, but uh, my family just doesn't want to move. Mm -hmm. And how far, uh, again, reminding me. Right. Was, yeah. So Davidson okay. College is in uh, near Charlotte, North Carolina. It's okay. in Davidson. And uh, Suwannee, or the University of the South, is in Suwannee, Tennessee, about nine hours away. Okay. A little bit of a distance. Sure. Distance. Yeah. And so, you know, we'd, we'd put in a lot of time at Davidson. Uh, we were very happy there. So I called him back. And so John McArdle, being the creative, uh, bold person he is, he said, well, why don't we think about this a little bit? Mm -hmm. What if you gave it a year trial? Would your family come? Would they give it a trial? Uh, I won't have to commit to you more than a year. You won't have to commit. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Yeah. I said, well, that's really quite interesting. And so I, I took that home, 
Uh, the family said, well, sure, we've been on sabbatical before. You know, we could go somewhere else and then come back home. And then over the course of that year, all four of us got to the point where we decided we would stay. Wow. Had that not happened, I definitely wouldn't be here as president yeah. of Carthage. So I came as provost. I became chief operating officer. Um, I learned lots about the operations of an institution of higher education, found it very rewarding. And then when our kids were gone and in college, we were ready for a new adventure. And so here I am at Carthage. Yeah. Wow. So the from the south to uh, to the to the freezing north of, uh, of Wisconsin. <laughs> right. Um, so how do you view your role and what were the first few practical things you did after becoming president? Carthage College has had a really expansive view of education. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's uh, primarily undergraduate, uh, but it's a thrill for me uh, to be leading uh, what you might even think of as a movement of people mm -hmm. who are committed to the education of people, um, men, women, um, at different stages of their life, mm -hmm. uh, thinking about different careers they might want and being sure that they have the skills and preparation that they need. I think the best role for the president of an institution like Carthage is comes down to really two things. So one is strategy, institutional strategy, and, and there are a lot of challenges for higher education looking forward. And then the other is relationships, um, maintaining and extending mm. relationships. Mm. And what relationships? Uh, well, relationships with students, faculty, staff, alumni, donors, friends in the community, uh, there are a lot of relationships that are, at a college or university that have to be sustained by the president. Uh, and then it's also important for many people in the organization or the movement, if you want to call it that, to be able to interact with the president and understand where the institution's going and, frankly, develop a sense of trust about that. Mm -hmm. um, my view is that nearly everything else that happens at a college or university can be done by others. Mm -hmm. And so the president's best role is to be focused on the strategy and the relationships. Uh, and to the extent that the institution is well organized, uh, great people doing great work and understanding how to interact, uh, then I can do my best work. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not saying I spend every day only on strategy and relationships. Uh, but I would imagine that uh, the meetings I'm in, either we're thinking about the initiatives we need to do going forward, or I am meeting students and faculty and staff or alumni on the road. That those are really the occupations. That, that helps to, to frame it. So then uh, with that in mind, strategy and relationships, when you um, accepted the position here at Carthage, I would, I would imagine, because there's people involved, that there were some people that had uh, reservations or questions or um, what's going to change with this new guy and, and um, what's the new vision, where are we going? So what, what did you do to help connect with that and overcome that or bridge that? Yeah. Right. Well, I did a lot of listening, and I know you often hear that. Uh, I did a lot of listening and then doing some very small things, just asking a lot of questions. Uh, so one of the small things I did at the beginning, which might have had a larger impact, was that I looked at the open spaces, our green spaces on campus, and it didn't seem like anyone was in them. And I said, what if we just get some chairs, hmm. red chairs, because Carthage is red, uh, and put them out there in twos and threes? Uh, when I first uh, suggested this to facilities, they thought I meant putting chairs by the lake. And I said, well, that's great. But I'm talking sure. about near the road where everybody's visible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And so it was a small thing, but to suggest that I'd, I'd like to see people together. I'd like to see them gathering faculty and students or faculty and staff just sitting in chairs. So taking a few small efforts, mm -hmm. steps, um, which does show that I'm, I'm observing and thinking. 
uh, and then asking a lot of questions, particularly listening for topics that no one's talking about. So, for instance, um, I was pretty sure that in a lot of our buildings there were systems that were going to reach the end of their useful life. I was a COO. I know how this infrastructure sure. works. Yeah. But not there wasn't a lot of conversation about it. Okay. And so I wanted to just ask, learn, uh, have we analyzed this? Uh, and so I spent really the, the whole first year asking questions, listening. And it could be that people might have said I didn't say enough about the vision. I mean, I, I, would, I was willing to talk about me, mm-hmm. and you know, just like I am with you, sure. explain yeah. my background. Mm-hmm. But I felt it was a little presumptuous for a first-time college president in his first year to, without knowing the institution well, to say that I am convinced I know exactly where we need to go. Uh, so there had to be a pivot at a certain point. Mm-hmm. And I would also say what's very important, I think, for institutions of higher education is continuity with the past. Mm. I think it's pretty difficult to take an organization like this or a movement and just do a right turn. Yes, right. Uh, yeah. So reading the history, and thankfully Carthage has kept a lot of its history and understanding what it has done for years and how that can be extended into the future uh, was really important. And I found a lot of great history. Um, for instance, I found that we first enrolled women in 1870. Some institutions, my alma mater included, waited 100 more years to do that. Wow. And it was so lifting that up and reminding people at Carthage that there's something about that. There's openness. Mm-hmm. There's a willingness to say who needs to be educated and what can we do about it. Uh, we started teaching business classes in 1870. That tells you something. Yeah. And when I read the history, I was able to pull out a theme, which is that we have been open at least since 1870. Uh, we haven't been defined by who we don't teach or what we won't teach. Mm-hmm. And we're here to meet the needs of the world. And so that could be the foundation for a vision. I mean, mm. it's, it's a great principle. Yeah. Uh, but then to draw upon that later. So that was the whole first year. I was doing a lot of listening. And it was only in the second year that I did anything that one might call casting a vision. Okay. So as you're, as you're talking, it's like, oh, my goodness, why do we exist? That's why right. does Carthage exist? What, what is our history? And then, as you said, pulling that theme out mm. and just showing people can sort of fan the flame that's always been there and reminding people like we are a community we we are forward thinking we've done this before we've been around a long time let's keep going with that right right Uh, so I like to really start from uh, first principles and say you know we are not uh, an institution with a lot of structure first we are a group of people we've been here for not here but we've been in existence as an organization for over 170 years so who have we been and what have we done Mm -hmm. Uh, and Yes, to, to pull out those moments in history where it's done something different or bold uh, and to ask, how did that play out? Uh, so starting in 1870, there was a lot to talk about. Um, we admitted students of color in the 1940s before the civil rights push. Mm. Uh, we can be proud of that. Heck yeah. And yeah. then uh, one of the boldest decisions this institution has done is move to Kenosha. Mm-hmm. It wasn't here. It was in Carthage, Illinois, you know, over four hours from Chicago, at a certain point, it wasn't served by bus or train anymore. And they took a very hard decision, which was that we're going to need to move. And they drew a triangle, Milwaukee, Rockford, Chicago, had a competition of cities. Kenosha came through with some land, which is why we're by the lake, um, and some money. And we got started here, started over. So you can tell that story a lot of ways. What I see is a really forward-looking institution that took a bold decision, uh, pulled it off with the timing right in the 1960s during the enrollment boom, and was it hard? Sure. Did people have to move? You have to move the whole institution? Faculty and staff have to sell their houses, buy houses, um, settle in a new place? But that is a story of deciding what we need to do and get on with it yeah. and how exciting it is. Uh, 
And I also remind folks that given the demographics of higher education now, there are a lot of small schools Mm -hmm. in small towns that will wish they had moved. Yeah. And we did it 50 years ago. Yeah. So you saw, as an organization, something that needed to happen. And lots of people see stuff that needs to happen, but (laughs) not a lot of people take action on it. Right. Um, So that that is, that's that's huge. So then uh, with that, you know, that's still that same theme. You talked about vision. You talked about taking action. So then how do you manage the vision casting of your staff that year two and seeing that vision through? So not just here's where I think we should go and then staying on the shore as I'm looking out at the lake, but going. I took opportunities to start to develop a narrative or a vision uh, without necessarily calling it one. Um, so I didn't want to have a, a big event uh, before I was ready. Uh, but you can test messages. You can test themes. You can listen closely to reactions. Um, I'm, I love to listen. Mm. Um, it may be that you're saying something well, or maybe you're, you're not communicating exactly what you mean. So every time there's an opportunity to speak in front of a group of faculty, staff, students, alumni, it's an opportunity to tell a story about where we might be going and, and insert um, some messages and themes. Uh, so I was, I was doing that at the beginning of my second year and then listening hard. If something just fell flat, it tells you something. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just not resonating. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, if you're doing this well, I believe, and you're tapping into history and the organizational culture that's there, uh, the ideas that are going to be the right ones for the future need to resonate at least at some level as you start to articulate them. And so I did some of that. And then I wrote up a, a draft of, you know, you might say a vision statement, uh, three pages, um, shared that, shared it with the senior staff, shared it with the board, mm-hmm. um, heard some feedback. It was great. Uh, we went through another editing process. I wasn't really submitting it for committee approval, but sure. I was saying, this is where I am. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to explain to myself and others where I think we're going and how do you think I'm doing. Uh, and then after a while, it started to coalesce. Uh, mm-hmm. And I was a big fan of uh, refining it to the point of a very small number of words. And so the vision that we are following now is uh, educating expansively, integrating regionally, and communicating boldly. I think nearly all of what we're going to need to do for the next 10 years can fall under those six words. And what did it start? How, how big was it when it started? So you got it down to six words, but what did it start? Like how, how many pages or, or you know? Well, uh, I didn't go over three pages to okay. start with, but, but still. Um, you might say, well, we need to launch some new uh, academic curricular, maybe co-curricular programs for the benefit of our students and yeah. uh, to diversify our revenue. Or you could just say, we need to educate expansively. And so it's that refinement process. Uh, it's all in there, yeah. uh, but it's just saying it in fewer and fewer words that people can remember. Mm-hmm. If people can't remember it, it's just too complicated. Yeah. Uh, what I love about it is, and you know, I'm happy to say it's mine, but at the same time it's not really mine mm-hmm. because it follows from what the institution has done so well at for so long. And so it's really Carthage. It's mm-hmm. a way of saying what Carthage has been in a way that's going to matter for the future. And I, I would say that People often want uh, certainty, and the way things are going, it's hard to know. Yeah. It's hard to know what's happening and exactly what we will do every yeah. year. Uh, but the clarity is important, very, mm. very important. Do you think clarity then is a, is the step or the key or, or a key to having people take a step towards something that's unsure when the, when the odds are not you know 100%? Yes. Uh, so articulating a, a vision that can be expressed in a very small number of words, allows you to base it in principle, um, perhaps even in sentiment, uh, and to inspire people to act. Mm. 
And that's coming from the clarity, and it's coming from the fact that it's been refined. Uh, I haven't seen anybody take a very certain line from a strategic plan uh, that takes you know three sentences to say and wake up in the morning and say, oh my goodness, I'm so glad you know we're doing section 3A today. <laughs> right. But I could imagine saying, waking up, and I do this myself, and say, okay, are, are we still educating expansively? Are we still trying to do that? Mm-hmm. And are we still integrating re- regionally? What does that mean? And it can continue to change what it means, but that there's a essential clarity underneath it. Mm-hmm. And then the lens that you're looking through as right. you're making decisions, as you're hiring people, I'm assuming, and That's right. uh, expanding in other areas. So then... Um, in 2019, I believe millennials became the largest U.S. population group and supposedly is estimated to have a similar stat by 2020, uh, 2025. I believe that in 2025, the millennials will uh, overtake the uh, baby boomers from um, in the workforce uh, for the largest people group in the workforce. So with that, what are your thoughts on millennials, Gen Z, entering the workforce and those generational dynamics? It is true that when you have an organization like this, uh, you're going to have people of different generations mm-hmm. who have different uh, expectations and approaches to their work, uh, to interactions at work, um, to how decisions should be made even. Um, and I'd say that for the younger folks uh, here, some of that can seem startling to people who've been here a while and have you know very settled expectations about mm-hmm. what, what the workplace is going to be like. Um, I would say that with all of this, uh, and this is not just about generational dynamics. Mm -hmm. Uh, We need to talk a lot more and a lot more openly Mm -hmm. about how we want to work, what is important to us, uh, where uh, the tension points may be, what expectations are. Um, I think often uh, the mentorship relationships or supervisory relationships uh, aren't healthy enough. We've had some concerns here where um, um, a newer employee uh, might think, you know, um, I have these other things I'm doing in my life. They're important to me. I've reached the end of the day, and so I'm going to leave, and I'm going to go do those things. And the other people in the office say, well, no, 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 no. These things have to get done today, and I, I'm sorry that there's going to be these other things you're interested in. You might have to give one or two of them up. Mm-hmm. Um, waiting for that to be a pain point is not the best approach, but uh, talking about what's most important to the group. I find that millennials and, and people in Gen Z, they have a lot of values that are very similar deep down. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all want to have fulfilling lives. Yeah. We do. Yeah. Uh, we want to have families that we can um, assist uh, and support. Um, and we all want to get some good work done together um, at a college or university or, or a nonprofit or a business. Uh, but being clear about how we all have these desires, needs, and then we're going to need to balance them. Mm-hmm. And so what's that going to look like? And there's the optimist in me, mm-hmm. believing that if we talk some things out, we'll get to a good place. But if we don't, because we are assuming that everything's already settled and my expectations are understood by you and you understand how you're going to meet them, then we're setting ourselves up for trouble, particularly in generational issues. Mm-hmm. So some of the issues maybe that are that come about are only issues because, coming back to something you said earlier, maybe we're not asking enough questions or listening enough or realizing that that similarity is there regardless of age of we want importance we want work that matters we want to uh, provide a we want to have a good life we want to yes. ha- we want to we want to help our families what have you seen um, since being at the college and, and in your role not just at Carthage but over the years with this generation this millennial generation what are some things like that have stand out that they bring to 
the workforce that they bring to the world that they bring to you know educational system well i've seen uh, students uh, mostly from age 18 on um, so before they entered the workforce to when they entered the workforce mm-hmm. if they're at our campus and uh, so it's a growing and learning process for all of them all the time i've also seen that there are many many students who haven't been part of the workforce as early as students were in a prior generation so okay. there is a mm-hmm. difference yeah um, f- for whatever reason um, the number the percentage of high school students in the u.s that have worked outside their house mm-hmm. um, is 20 percentage points lower. Uh-huh. So there's just less experience being in groups yeah. uh, and doing work together. Uh, and so I think that leads to um, some assumptions um, about how significant it is to show up on time, um, mm-hmm. how significant it is uh, to leave early, um, whether it's necessary to stay late, uh, and you know, we can all be kind of idealists about this. Um, I like to think that I could work just 40 hours a week. I mean, why not? <laughs> but it just doesn't work out that no, way. No, um, it doesn't. Uh, but I, I don't think that those things come from, um, at least at a place like Carthage. Uh, we have roll-up-your-sleeves kind of students that, mm-hmm. that want to, yeah. to learn hard, um, study hard, and get a job. Uh, it just may come from um, inattention or um, uh, a lack of a good mentor as they're learning about work and learning about the workforce. Uh, so I, that's what I would say I mm-hmm. see. Now, there's some young people, uh, for instance, that say, well, you know, I just don't want to live in a small town. I want to live in a city for lots of oppor- um, opportunities. Perhaps that's different from some of us who are older because we, we didn't know that we might be able to make a priority like that. Mm. And some younger people don't see why they can't. Mm-hmm. I don't see anything wrong with that. It's just a question of whether you can make it all work. Sure. You know, yeah. that's, there's yeah. nothing wrong. Yeah. Um, and so I, I don't want to say that um, they're expecting too much. I'm not sure they're expecting too much. The question is, uh, can they find an arrangement where they can live that way and do yeah. some good work and earn some compensation, support their family? Yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it is a process. So I, I think each generation's expectations are different. I also think that uh, younger people today are, are just less likely to accept what seems inauthentic or, or mm. marketing. I, I think they have a kind of a BS meter that's uh, pretty sensitive. Like, mm. just just tell me the truth. Like, yeah. let's, let's not fool around. And yeah. don't, don't give me the corporate speak. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's a good thing, too. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But that, that, um, that characteristic of authenticity, mm-hmm. that matters to me personally a lot. Um, even if I don't agree with somebody, at least, at least I know where we stand. Right. Um, you know, and at least we can agree on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that stands. So um, the title of the podcast itself is The Impact of Leadership. And um, I always like to hear who's impacted the folks that I've interviewed. And so with that in mind, I've got a triple threat uh, lineup of questions for <laughs> okay. you. Um, what's the greatest leadership lesson that you've learned? Uh, who did you learn it from or, or how did you learn it? And why was that so impactful for you? The greatest leadership lesson I've learned is to be a non-anxious or non-reactive presence. I was uh, taught that uh, by interacting with uh, the dean of the School of Theology at Sewanee, um, mm-hmm. so an Episcopal priest and later bishop, um, who pointed out how powerful that can be and how many priests or seminary students need to learn it. And it comes from family systems theory. but. Uh, I, I came to appreciate so strongly how when there's a really tough discussion to be had, uh, if you're going to be a leader um, and you're going to deliver some hard messages, the last thing you want 
is for this interaction to become just a series of reactions. Somebody gets upset, then you get upset, then you say something you shouldn't, then they react to that, because all of that is a distraction from yeah. what's actually happening. Yes. And sometimes people need to say a lot of things and you need to hear them, not ignore them, not get upset. And so, uh, and that's not, I don't wanna say it's checking out. You need to be present in the moment, but you need to uh, be a non-reactive presence, hear what they have to say. They may be angry, they may be upset, they, they may question your motives, uh, but develop that capacity. Over time, uh, that means that the organization will be healthier. People will feel like they were hurt um, because they really were hurt. Uh, and you're not introducing unnecessary emotion into what's already difficult. So that lesson, uh, which comes from Edwin Friedman, who has done some work on this, um, and Edwin Friedman would say there are three things. There's being self-differentiated, which is about not being a part of someone else's emotional matrix. Hmm. Um, and then being non-anxious, and then being present with those that you're leading, that all of those things are vital in families, um, in religious organizations, and I would say in all kinds of organizations. Organizations that are trying hard not to be bureaucratic and hierarchical and all of the negative things, um, where authenticity matters. Um, they're going to need leaders who have that capacity. Um, if everything's going well, maybe you don't need it. But something's probably going to go wrong. Yeah. Uh, some, you know, budget's going to need to be adjusted or somebody's office is going to have to be moved or, mm -hmm. you know, some building's going to have to be renovated. And developing that capacity, that, that non-anxiousness, um, can over time actually develop more confidence and trust than the opposite, which is just reacting. Everybody knows you're going to react, so they, they give you the feedback mm -hmm. and then you get angry at them and then they, you know, back and forth. And it turns into a whole thing that it never started out to right, be. Right, and which is completely unproductive. Yeah and means that people are less likely to tell you what they mm. think. Yeah, just tell me the truth. Nah, I'd yeah. rather not. <laughs> right, because I know, I know you're going to get angry. Yeah, man, that's so good. I did, man, that is a great answer. I'm so glad you said that. So then what are some books, uh, podcasts, leaders, places, things like that? I mean, I'm so intrigued by your, your story and, and what brought you here and to sit here actually now uh, that you would encourage folks to, to check out. Well, Edwin Friedman... Um, has two books. Uh, one's called Generation to Generation, and another is called Failure of Nerve, um, and they're about leadership. Um, and I will say, since we're here, that mm -hmm. um, I don't agree with everything Edwin Friedman writes, but I think there's a lot of value in, in some of that. And I would point out one more, which is uh, Patrick Lencioni's uh, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Ah, yes. I think there's a lot of value yeah. there. And if you can get a team to avoid all five, oh, man. you have a very strong team. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I would point that out, too. I wondered what the other voice was that I was hearing as you were talking. It was Simon Sinek, Start With Why, and uh, Trust as the basis. Um, Pat, right. Patrick Lencioni starting with the trust and then moving up from there, but start with you know trust as the basis, yeah. That's right. So the, the five things to avoid on the team would be the absence of trust, uh, fear of conflict, lack of commitment, avoidance of accountability, and then inattention to results. And um, sure enough, when, when you see a team not working, you can point out one of those five and maybe more than one that's not going well. But it, it takes a lot of self-awareness and work with a group um, and, and uh, being honest about the difficulties uh, to help people grow into that. Uh, and it can be a, a long journey for some people. Um, some people I'm not sure are prepared mm -hmm. uh, to do all those things, to really be vulnerable, mm -hmm. uh, to acknowledge when they're out of line, yeah. uh, to, to accept their mistakes. Um, in public. Yeah. Um, but I think there's tremendous value there. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, uh, John, for, for 
um, being who you are for leading the way that you do and uh, for taking time because the people that are going to listen to this, they're going to get a lot out of it. So thank you so much. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity. My takeaway and action item are tied together. Edwin Friedman's theory of differentiated leadership. I hadn't heard of this before and was intrigued to say the least. So then that led to my action item. I got back to the office. I was researching the theory of differentiated leadership um, and then figured out, okay, so once I research this, I'm going to have to apply it as needed and then pass along to my team. So I've been doing just that. Actually, there's a video on YouTube called Friedman's Theory of Differentiated Leadership Made Simple. When I saw that, simple stood out to me because that seems to fit me uh, like a glove. And I've watched it several times. And actually, I passed it on to both of my directors. And I believe one of them actually has purchased the book that uh, was referenced by Dr. Swallow. Um, And I encourage you to do the same, whether it's the book or the video or both. Now, the book is called A Failure of Nerve. Well, if you've gotten value from this episode, pass it along to somebody else or bring it up at the next networking event you attend. And if you're feeling really froggy, give us a review and a five-star rating in whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Thank you for your time. If you want to connect with us, you can shoot us an email at impactpodcast at ccbtechnology.com or if you want to connect with me specifically, at Steve Shear on Instagram, Steve Shear on LinkedIn, and as always, from all of us here at CCB Technology, thanks for listening. <laughs>